0: Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we're left awestruck in worship this morning upon the meditation that You have intervened in history that Jesus Christ was born to a virgin and was was God incarnate here to dwell. Lord, we're awed to think of the record of Scripture and how to the last detail it was unfolding before eyes to see and ears to hear on those days when You, dear Jesus Christ, walked the earth among us. Lord, I thank You that that moment of fellowship, that those who shared at that time with You in the flesh was not the only manifestation of Emmanuel that was to fulfill the great prophecy of old, but greater still, and immeasurably so, was that manifest fulfillment when you came and indwelled the hearts of every believer who has confessed faith in your name and by a miracle of the Spirit was regenerate, born again. Just as you became a baby and were born, so we, Lord Jesus, experience redemption by being born again. Lord, we've experienced newness of life and God incarnate here to dwell, not just among us, but in us. These thoughts are too high for mere minds to contemplate and their implications too vast for one finite world to contain. And so we share in a celebration and an anticipation of a glorious unfolding of your power revealed that far eclipses the few years we have to enjoy it and to cherish it here on earth. And so we look forward to our eternal life. Lord, ever more so as the day approaches, realizing that these scriptures remind us of the essence of reality, and cause our hearts once again to skip a beat. And draw, draw our attention once again to the truth that you have proclaimed and become. And Lord, established within the hearts of us all. I just thank you for this time today. I pray that you would be magnified through the giving and hearing of your word today. And that our, Lord, reasons to worship and celebrate this season would overflow, Lord, as we remember the great work that You have done and the great gifts that You have given. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What a gift it is. And if we only had the gift of fellowship together around His word this morning, it would be enough reason to celebrate and embrace with joy this advent season and christmas time coming i would like to follow up with from last week's message with a second part under this title from psalm 31 the title was of last week's message the believers last stand and so this morning will be part 2 the believers last stand part 2 while i'm introducing the message here in the basic framework if you would turn with me in your bible to psalm 31 we'll read again these 24 truth-saturated verses, and see if they aren't illuminated a little more deeply to our hearts today as we ponder them and seek to draw on some of the context from the greater body of Scripture and application for us today from David's words. I'm reminded of the author, second, primarily first the Holy Spirit, secondarily his servant David, and his connection to Jesus Christ, in previous Christmases, we've introduced sermons from Matthew's first chapter, where Matthew himself introduces his gospel and Jesus, the central figure of the gospel, by, the, by way of the Old Testament, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And there's these glorious and almost beyond comprehension moments of truth that are evident in Scripture that illustrate and illuminate the connection between David and Jesus Christ that leaves us staggered at the implications. David is the father, as it were, of Jesus inasmuch as much as he is called his son, he's in the generational lineage, our Lord Jesus that is, of David, but he's also David's Lord. And sometimes as David's, David writes, we've taken note and mentioned before that he writes as a fly on the wall of history, and it seems as though his words transcend his experience, and indeed I'm sure they do at times, where he's writing beyond the circumstances, and he's writing as the seed of the Messiah, as it were. And thus his words ring with truth far beyond the battles he was facing, the day-to-day stresses, his own sin, his frailty as a human, the pressures of administrating through his kingly role, the daily affairs of an entire nation. And that's what really makes his words immortal. They are not just the words of an average human being, however great he may have been relatively speaking, but they are the words of the lineage bearer of Christ. And this strikes me so powerfully and especially in psalms like this which include in the declaration of David himself verses like verse 5 where the familiar words that Jesus himself echoed are written down centuries before by David's pen when he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. However, could David have known The significance of those words that provided exactly what Jesus Christ would say as he hung on Calvary. There's only one way. Men of God were moved along by the Holy Spirit and breathed out by his inspiration. Timeless words that connected thoughts centuries removed in the same unbreakable chain of revealed redemptive truth. Psalm 31 connects directly to Christmas and to Calvary. And it's amazing to highlight and to see these connections. With that introduction, let's read this psalm that was written originally to the choir master, a psalm of David, beginning in Psalm 31, verse 1. David writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distresses, the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hands of my enemy You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbor's. And an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Verse 14 But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt oh how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind in the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues verse 21 blessed be the Lord for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me When I was in a besieged city, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you, his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repraise the one who acts in pride. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. the believer's last stand. The believer's only stand. The beauty and imagery and intimacy of this psalm, as we mentioned last week, rests on the words that David wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it strikes me how David so often identifies and identifies with covenant themes central to the history and central to Scripture. There's three points at least where it seems to me are allusions to the Exodus. But there's many more points that seem to be allusions to the future. The allusions to the Exodus come through the pages and between the lines when we read, as we mentioned last week, verses 1 through 5, David's reference to the Lord as his rock and his shelter and his fortress. We recall Deuteronomy chapter 32 where Moses himself wrote a song and his last words were sung to the children of Israel, and he referred to God, Almighty God, the covenant keeper, Israel's hope, foundation and security, and a proper noun as the rock. The first time in Scripture where God is referred to in these terms, this last week in family devotions, my sons and I were talking about ways that we can understand God better when we consider a rock. And we talked about foundation, permanence, unchanging the safety and security it provides especially if it's very large you can find safety in it we also studied some connections to rock to rocks and the rock and mountainous places that were familiar in Moses experience Moses begged the Lord to show him proof that his word and covenant would be fulfilled because he knew very intimately and closely that he dwelt among a wicked people, especially as he experienced the gross apostasy, having returned from that visible expression of God's power and authority and righteousness on Sinai, having the verified copies of God's almighty words in his very hands carved by the fingertip, of the Lord of glory, and here he arrives at the base of the mountain to a bunch of idol worshipers who had grown impatient and unfaithful in such a short amount of time, melted down gold, worshipped a calf, copied their pagan neighbors, and he found them carousing and worshiping idols. Moses, shortly after this moment of great despair and distress, no less, Similar to what David writes when he records in this psalm, that he's gone through experiences that try him to the very core of his being and to the very core of his calling, some of them inflicted by his enemies, some of them self-inflicted. And he cries out, Be gracious to me, O Lord, I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Moses knew enough to know that he needed a revelation from Almighty God to have his faith and confidence reassured that the Almighty God had prepared for this event, and it did not surprise him to see his children so wayward in their affections as to erect a golden calf just moments before that they, they would receive divine, specific revelation by the finger of Almighty God. As Moses is caught back away onto the mountain again. God hides him safely in the cleft of the rock and his glory passes before him. And a window, as we've mentioned, into the ineffable is open just a crack so a mere man might see the almighty power of God. And as long as Moses remembered that moment, I am sure that his own sin and the collective sin of this people never had the same power of discouragement over him again. And from that moment and many experiences and the Word of God and His interaction, more privileged audience than any human being had known prior to Him to talk face to face almost with the Almighty God, Moses knew God as the rock. The rock that hid Him. The rock that founded His Ministry and calling in the nation that he was called to lead, however fallible and frail himself. The rock that provided refuge from him and a window of opportunity to see the glory of the Lord revealed. And now David echoes with the faithful prophets of old, joining in the chorus of glory to God. You, in you, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And that was a song that was written, as I mentioned, published in 1776 by a more contemporary follower of Jesus Christ. I believe his name was Augustus Toplady. And he wrote that psalm in his own, after his own experience of a storm. And God provided in his providence a cleft in the rock for him to hide. And it got him thinking about ultimate security in Jesus Christ and he thought of the cleft in Jesus side and he thought of the cleft in the rock where Moses was hid he's thought of psalm 31 and he cried out with those immortal words rock of ages cleft for me not those words don't stand alone they stand because psalm 31 divinely dictated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had already rung out with the clarion call, the heraldic announcement through all of history that God Himself is a rock of refuge for His people and a fortress that the enemy can never ultimately threaten or assail. That was point number one last week. What does a believer stand on? When the believer makes his stand, his last stand, and his stand in life. What does he stand on? He stands on the rock of ages. He stands on the rock that Jesus declares the foundation. Obedience, empowered by the Spirit's manifestly changing his heart to follow his Messiah wherever he leads. And that testimony and that assurance of his own redemption provides a foundation that though he can be rattled, He can never utterly be destroyed. Though he is persecuted, he is not abandoned. Though he is shaken, you remember these words from the apostle, these themes of stability and foundational faith in Scripture build on one another to remind us of the impregnable security that God alone provides. A believer stands on an immovable rock. Number two, the believer's last stand. And these remaining points, the next three, we'll spend some time on and we'll mention the last three, hopefully in the close of this message, more in passing. But as we get to the meat of this message or continue to digest the meat of David's psalm in verse 6, perhaps we can see not only what the believer stands on, but secondly, what the believer stands against. If the believer, if the Christian, if David, if Moses, if... uh, Top lady, the author of the Rock of Ages, if any faithful saint through Scripture, if the Apostle Paul stands, if he stands on something, the Word of God is repeatedly clear. He stands also against something. For David, he reveals this truth, this principle in verses 6 through 8 when he says, following verse 5, into your hands I commit your spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God, detailing in no uncertain terms where he stands. He goes on to say in verse 6 what he stands against. He says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. David identifies in verse 8 that there is an enemy in his experience that he stands against. He says it more sharply and clearly in verse 6. By this, perhaps by modern sensibilities, shocking language, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. This is not a brief and passing message in the Psalms where David uses language this strong as to turn maledictory affections, that is, affections or statements that call down and proclaim a curse on evil and evil people in his writings. This is not an isolated event. This appears in sometimes whole Psalms are called imprecatory Psalms, which is a word that means to pronounce a curse, to declare judgment for a wrong. These are authoritative psalms that declare terms of righteousness and rebuke, and not just rebuke, but utter complete destruction and punishment for wickedness should it continue to stand against the purposes of Almighty God. Now part of the reason why these verses... And phrases like, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, ring a little shocking in our ears, is because these days, it seems like the only heresy is to say there is such a thing as heresy, to quote somebody that's not me and I don't know who it is. The only heresy is to say that something's wrong. G.K. Chesterton, I remember the author of this quote said, oh man, put myself on the spot, here we go. Tolerance is a virtue of a man with no conviction. G.K. Chesterton said this quote, and I think David would give a hearty amen. Tolerance is a virtue of a man with no conviction. Another way to say, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. In other words, if I stand on something and for something, I necessarily stand against something. David, when he was under the unction, the movement of the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of God was moving and inspiring him and breathing through him, these words he stated clearly and emphatically that his psalm celebrated the Rock of Ages, the glorious fortress, whose namesake that his is the concern of his every will and intention. Verse 3, You are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. So David knew that if God did things for his name's sake, and if God redeems his people, if he provides a way of escape, a foundation for their life, if he fulfills his promises to the nth degree, if he follows through on his every word and will for his children and for everyone if there are any who stand opposed and against his glory then God's name is in that case made great and venerated in justice and in judgment this is just as true today as it was when it was written We may and should, I think, make a different application in our own affections of how to speak out and stand against evil people. We don't take up the sword in the same way David did. The New Testament gives us instructions of new covenant application of the war that we are nevertheless to wage. But I will tell you there's more in common that the believer has today with the words of David than our modern world would like us to believe the essence of opposition is exactly the same today I would submit to you as it was in David's time only the weapons of our warfare have changed when David was fighting his battles he was anointed and commanded to stand against with the sword in hand the proponents the proponents of evil who would just as soon, without a second thought, slay all of God's people, and including among them David himself, in whose loins was kept the seed of the Messiah. Thank God, the God of all history and providence, that David bore his sword and did it well. Without David's faithfulness to fight the enemies. Of God's ultimate kingdom purposes and his obedience to do so even in waging war against Israel's enemies we would have no Messiah today thank God that David bore the sword against those who paid no regard to God but only regard to worthless idols David fought against the proponents but the proponents make propositions And this is where we pick up the sword and fight. What is our sword? We're reminded that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And it's part of the armaments with with which every believer is equipped. But we are called to deftly wield it against powers that assail the kingdom of God today. But instead of the proponents, the essence of the war, while being the same, takes application against the proposition. We are to fight against ideas. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, for instance, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. You remember this familiar verse from our 2 Corinthians series, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments, And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have a calling to wage war like David did. And the essence of the opposition today is just as it was then. There are still those, ideas and proponents, who pay regard to worthless idols and care nothing of the name of Christ. There are those who don't have a single thought, even lingering in the periphery of their conscience, like Psalm 31.3, For your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. But instead, their every thought and their every action is motivated for their own sake. I lead and guide myself. How do we fight when we're surrounded by enemies like that? Who make those kinds of claims? There is no God or I am Him. And shame on you if you should disagree with me. Who are you? A Christian you claim you should be tolerant of my ideas. The Christian is not called to tolerate the ideas that stand in opposition to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If there is an opinion that stands against the knowledge of Christ, it's not equally valid with the opinion that says Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a standard to measure between the thoughts and the ideas, between the motive forces that invade the hearts of unbelievers and the ones that have invaded the hearts of believers. And here the battle lines are drawn, and there is no two-state solution, as it were. We are called to fight to the death, to promote the kingdom rights of Jesus Christ, but we do so with the sword of the Spirit in hand. But we do so uncompromising and unbending in our will to declare that He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. We see the essence of the war coming to a head and God's final and full conclusion towards the end of our scriptures in the book of Revelation. We get another sneak peek. We're hid in the cleft of the rock like Moses and the rest of scripture, but God opens just a glimpse of His glory, His future intentions for His will and kingdom. And there we see the final forces as represented by the categorical destruction of the whore, the prostitute of Babylon, who has been fueled by ideas of rebellion against the Almighty, like every king and every person who is independently, in original sin applied, said, there is no God, or I can ignore him. I can go my own way and do my own thing. And on that final day, when the forces finally clash, you talk about writing an imprecatory psalm. You have only to read the book of Revelation and to see the utter destruction and dismemberment of every one of God's enemies in the final day. The great question, the great honest question that lingers in the consciousness of any honest student of history is why would God suffer a wicked world so long? And why would God suffer a wicked individual in heart so many years? It's His forbearance. As Jonathan Edwards tells us in his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's something like His unobliged will, His arbitrary will, if you will. He is not bound by covenant, that is to say, He is not bound by covenant to preserve those who have declared themselves enemies of God. By their attitude of rebellion against him. He is not obligated by covenant to preserve them one more moment, but somehow in his grace he does. And in the new covenant, as Jesus Christ has come, the, the seed of the Messiah has arrived. Some of the applications of how we fight have changed, but as I mentioned before, the believer still stands against strongholds, arguments, opinions, and thoughts stemming from subversive forces to the kingdom of Christ. And reading back in David's time to the principles that he stood on and the great meditations that gave courage to his soul is a worthy source for us to be encouraged. We might ask an additional question related to idolatry, and I think it's worthy of our attention for a moment in verse 6 reading again, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Who are those that pay regard to worthless idols? And what does paying regard to worthless idols look like? Worthless idolatry is perhaps the elevation of anything, anything other than the God of Scripture on the high places of the human consciences. Again, worthless idolatry could be, just, could be defined as the elevation of anything, anything or anyone other than the God of Scripture on the high places of the human consciousness. Today, we don't have the same type of idols materially that the Old Testament boasted where they would set up a carved piece of wood or a chiseled piece of stone, summon their priests and their seances, And create this superstitious liturgy and dance around praying for intervention from a God who wasn't there. A God who Elijah mocked and said, maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Elijah had the heart of one who stood opposed to every idea that would raise itself against the only true revelation of God himself. And he called out the forces of evil in his day to their face and said, you're foolish. And ridiculous. And then he called upon the God of the universe to answer his humble prayer, to show mercy upon himself and the people, to intervene on behalf of the few thousand faithful that remained among who knows millions who had denied, categorically denied the God who had led them through the Red Sea, parted those waters under the servant Moses guided them through the wilderness, ushered them into the promised land, fulfilled His covenant in spite of their sin and frailty. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But idolatry is not limited to idols such as these, the pagan representations of power or ability that man used to erect. It's anything elevated on the high places of the human consciousness. Again, it's not just forms and material things. It's ideas, opinions, and notions and propositions that stand and fly in the face of the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as Lord. We look in the, at the verses following and we see in contrast to the idolatry around him, the worthless worship of these forces that people were wont to pursue. David says, instead of those, I trust in the Lord. Instead of paying regard, that is, venerating or misapplying glory or worshiping or declaring as valuable or worthy of pursuit any of these other forces or objects, instead of directing my attention to other things, I trust in the Lord. He also says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. David declares, there is no other source of faithful affection. No other source of faithful affection that is superior to a faithful God who sent His faithful Son, who intervened on our behalf, who became propitiation for our sin and saved us. In other words, what is worthless idolatry? Finding any source of steadfast love superior, referred to more often, more quickly run to, or held above the place and the position that God ought to hold in your heart as a place of security and hope for you. David also says, as he declares God to be an all-seeing, an omniscient and omnipotent God, a God who is everywhere and intervenes and sees even into the deepest recesses of the heart, because you have seen my affliction. David affirms that God sees all He sees everything from the concrete to the abstract and there is nothing hidden from His sight. So worthless idolatry would be the elevation of anything other than the God of Scripture on the high places of the human consciousness as a source of comprehensive knowledge or as a worthy confidant surpassing the omnipotent Lord. There is no one that knows you or can know you better than God. When we pursue relationships, Because we long to have that intimacy of knowledge, that companionship with someone else. We long to have someone who will stand by us through the thick and the thin, who will see us in our affliction and will still love us. And these kinds of pursuits, if they don't flow out of a superior relationship with the Lord who sees everything and loves us just the same on the price paid by His Son than any pursuit of knowledge, knowing, and confidant, Of confiding in someone or something outside his worthless idolatry. David goes on, he says that God, as contrasted to the worthless idols, has known the distress of his soul. Our deepest felt source of empathy is found in the Lord, just as our deepest felt source of communion and also affection and it goes on and on David says one thing after another attributes and aspects of his relationship with God that he is tied to the rock and he has differentiated for what people substitute idols for and verse 8 and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy he David says his God is superior because he actually keeps him safe and his God is the most trusted source of adversary-tested loyalty. It is the place of first resort and last resort. His God is His last stand and first and most trusted source of help and hope in the face of adversity. And finally, He trusts His God to set His feet in a broad place. You... As opposed to the worthless idols of the cultures around. You and you alone, the rock of my salvation, have set my feet in a broad place. There is no other ground for security. What is idolatry? The elevation of anything other than God, the God of Scripture on the high places of the human consciousness. Something could be elevated as an indispensable refuge of security. That place where we run... And feel the safest rivaling the security of the rock of our salvation there is no rival anything that is run to or trusted in as a rival for the security that the rock our Almighty God provides is a worthless idol to which we should pay no regard these are the ideas these are the forces that the believer stands against when he makes his stand He understands that because he stands for the Lord and on the rock of his salvation, that he must necessarily stand against every misallocation of glory. Anything that would steal from the glory of God. The true believer in the spirit of Psalm 31 prays prayers like this, Lord, make me jealous for your namesake like you are jealous for your namesake. Make me so protective of you and your beauty, your majesty, and your glory, your renown, that when people speak ill of you, it immediately snaps something inside. It trips a trigger, and it causes me to act in a spirit-led way in opposition, taking up that sword of the Spirit and answering the voice of the enemy through the rebellious person with the infallible words of God. Those words, there's plenty to choose from. Make them your source of meditation. Be ready to give an answer to these voices that have too much confidence these days. Because Christians have been sequestered and quarantined and suppressed, and their voice, by today's politically correct standard, has been marginalized to a degree that it's a faint whimper in some sectors and some areas of culture at best because we've allowed ourselves to say we ought not stand against anything. We have done the kingdom of God no good service under those conditions, and we must reclaim the authority that God has given us, His church, to proclaim His truth and to announce and to go into all the world and disciple all nations in everything that He has commanded. If we did so, the prideful voices of dissent The arrogant claims of false lordship, the worthless regard that is paid to the idolatry of our age would lose a lot of its hubris, a lot of its pride, a lot of its self-confidence. And I pray that as you and my and others' voices join join with the voice of truth echoing through the ages in the word of God, that we would see an advance against the kingdom of darkness and an advance of the kingdom of God. Point number three, the believer's last stand. We've mentioned the believer stands on the rock of his salvation, Almighty God. And the work of redemption through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ applied to his heart by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we've talked about the believer's last stand, where he, what he stands against, the forces that rallied themselves in worthless idolatry against the Almighty. And thirdly, it's important to note that the believer stands in spite of Quite a catalog of woes. There's an extensive range of possible woes that you and I can come in contact with. We're reminded of Job. We're also reminded of Job in the, in the testimony of David. David, like Job, experienced quite a range, quite a scope of woes. Interior, that is, inside him and on, on the exterior, outside him as well. We read these verses again, beginning in verse 9. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, For I am in distress, my eye is wasted from grief. The believer stands in spite of stress. The believer stands in spite of wasting grief. Grief so deep and profound that it affects the physical body, that it wastes the eye. And also, the next line, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sigh, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. This is an extreme depiction of what the believer can and is sometimes called to stand in spite of. Woes and grief, distress of soul and body, so deep, so broad, so profound that they would otherwise crush a man. But as we're reminded again in Second Corinthians, under these conditions, it uniquely enables the surpassing glory of the life-preserving power of Jesus Christ to be seen by those who know full well that under similar conditions, they would absolutely abandon their faith. They would absolutely cower in fear and despair and absolutely lose all remaining thread and shred of sanity. Not only did David experience these conditions on the inside at times, and it seems that he is explaining circumstances perhaps when his sons abandoned him his authority and his parental leadership as well and staged coups against him David had animosity in his own household it's easy to bear the sword easier I should say to bear the sword against pagan enemies abroad but what if you have to pick up the sword against your own son against your own son what if generals in your army that remain faithful to you in so doing must kill, must destroy, must rout enemies of your own son's design? These are the kind of distresses that cause the eye to be wasted with grief. This is the kind of extent of sorrow that reaches deep within to the soul, deep within the soul and into the body also. This is the kind of sorrow and sign that tries men's souls to the very brink of utter despair. And these are the kind of conditions that when we endure under them, must mean, must mean that there's a superior force that holds us together. A power that's mysteriously answering our prayers, knitting us together in the wee hours of the night where we can't sleep because the anguish is so heavy. That kind of power that comes through in our weakness and actually instead of destroying us, makes those things that would utterly rout us and dismember us from the hope of our salvation actually make us stronger. These are the times in the darkest hours of the soul sighing when the strongest moments and intervention of God's grace as our rock is evident to the frail, suffering human being. If this wasn't enough, in verses 11 through 13, David goes on to describe the nature of the enemies, those outside of him that oppose him on every side. David stands in spite of, verse 11, all my adversaries. It says, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach. Because of his enemies, his reputation is destroyed. David stands in spite of it. He says, especially to my neighbors, those closest to him, in close proximity, people he sees every day, find He finds as he walks past, their eyes glancing away, them scurrying their children out of his presence. They'd rather be somewhere else than in the presence of a man who has endured such great reproach. He has become an object of dread to my acquaintances, he says, again verse 11. To those who see me in the street, they flee before me. I have become forgotten like one who is dead. I have become a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. David stands in spite of these conditions. I mentioned briefly the situation in David's own household that would lend itself to this kind of anguish. But that wasn't the only reason why David suffered. David suffered under conditions like this because... It was a prophetic picture, I believe, in part of what Jesus Christ himself would suffer. He was despised and rejected of men. He was rejected by everyone, spit upon, mocked. His clothes were gambled and sold. His head that was befitting only for a crown designed in glory. That would shine with blinding light and knock over his every adversary was replaced with one of thorns. That crushed his skull in a bloody mass. This was the experience of the son of David. But in the hour of his greatest affliction, his greatest work was accomplished. And you talk about his glory being manifestly known and empowered as a result of the great endurance that he took upon his shredded back, his pierced brow, wrists and feet. You have a picture of the incredible power of God to work all things together for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purposes, who sovereignly ordains every event, and sometimes the most apparently horrific for the most amazing events in all of history. The believer stands in spite of the momentary afflictions, even though their scope would otherwise crush us. The believer stands in spite of the internal effects of these temporal woes that David mentions. The believer stands in spite of betrayal and persecution by the closest of friends inflicting maximum harm. You all know that those who know you the most have the power to betray you the worst. And under these conditions, though that may happen, though friends, neighbors, associates, even spouses and children may betray one another. Jesus Christ is closer than a brother and never leaves us or forsakes us. And that knowledge alone is the strength to endure a catalog of woes such as this. And David says as much. In verse 14, after this list, a very depressing on the face of it, list of all the things that he has endured. He says in verse 14, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. David says, in interpretation, I stand in spite of distress, grief, that destroys, if it could, the soul, the body, and the eye. I stand in spite of sorrow, sign, and iniquity that would waste my bones away. I stand in spite of adversaries that destroy and make me a reproach to my neighbors and closest acquaintances. I have become forgotten. I stand in spite, though, of those who have declared me anathema to them and i stand in spite of becoming like a broken vessel useless discarded by those that i love and care for the most who whisper against me in terror on every side i stand in spite of all of that why because i trust in you O lord i say you are my god and in verse 15 that first phrase is so powerful and so central highlight it twice my times Are in your hands if your faith is united with David and you truly believe that statement my times are in your hands that is my times of distress my times of grief my times of sorrow sighing iniquity wasting and dread and reproach and brokenness if those times are in God's hands you will stand in spite of them. If you believe, that is, that those times of the great extreme woes that the soul and body experience the sight of glory are in God's hands, you will stand like David did. You will stand in spite of all of these forces that would otherwise easily destroy. Think just for a moment by way of illustration how many biographies you've read have you ever taken the time to read a biography, a book about a person who led a really nondescript life, who really never encountered any challenges, there was no crisis, things were easy, and it was just relatively uneventful? They kind of went along to get along, that kind of phlegmatic personality that is just a wave tossed about in the ocean of waves, just a bobber blown along by the, the, you know, the, the winds of doctrine and the driving currents of life. Are biographies written about those kind of people? No. We don't read or treasure or venerate stories of saints and those exemplary people who have stood strong in their faith, who are just gullible, easily corrupted, and lived life to get along. We find, and rightly so, heroes among those who stand out among the ordinary because they have extraordinary forces at work, it seems, within their soul, who under pressed conditions exhibited a kind of resolve that we would like to have. Now you can see this in the wrong light or you can see it in the correct one. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that writes any biography worth reading. And you can write a story like that that is God's pen through you if you have a faith that your times are in His hands. Not for your own glory but for His May it be said of each one of us, to at least a couple, those we're called to influence, our families for sure, and our church family also, that we stood in times that were difficult. When the maelstroms of life left our structure unmarred, relatively speaking, a shutter may have blown off or a door cracked open, but basically the foundation, because we had a foundation, our house remained, though the winds blew against it and the floods rose around it that is a picture of a testimony that jesus christ declared his disciples would exhibit and they did exactly that we read their stories and we're encouraged we go to hebrews 11 for good reasons and we pray that god would give us that kind of heart and that kind of endurance that we would stand in spite of the hurricane force gales of life The believer also stands instead of something. stands on Christ. He stands against forces that stand against God's glory. He stands in spite of a catalog of woes, internal and external, and the believer stands instead of the wicked. And here we'll speed up in our coverage as we read David's second half, verse 14, but I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. He says in 15, then following, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David has enemies and persecutors that he wishes to stand instead of for God's glory, not his own. Verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Shine your glory upon me that your steadfast love might preserve me instead instead of the forces that it would otherwise usurp your throne. Verse 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. Instead, he says in the second half of that, verse 17, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Verse 16, let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. There's one more phrase I'll borrow for this point. Verse 20 at the end, he says, from the strife of tongues. That is a, He protects his people, God protects his own from the strife of tongues. David seeks to stand in spite of forces that constitute lying lips, speak insolently, are full of pride and contempt. They are a blight on righteousness. They are perverse in nature. They stir up the strife of tongues. They persecute God's people. They're the enemies of God's glory. And as we mentioned before, the believer stands against things. The reason we stand against things is ultimately we want to see God's word and glory triumph. I'm reminded of a video that we watched on a Wednesday night which was a long-standing debate where two men opposed and clashed on worldview grounds and neither was willing, seemingly, to give an inch. The two men I'm referring to are Christopher Hitchens, a now uh, deceased satirical writer. Uh, He was a pretty prolific author, wrote for uh, humanistic Publications such as Slate Magazine, Vogue Magazine and others like that and in those intellectual rebellious circles of humanism he was well known. A man who wrote uh, very readable prose and very engaging. He was good in his craft as far as mere rhetoric is concerned. Guy had strong opinions and he could defend them well according to man's wisdom. He came head-to-head head in this debate with another man who was equipped and held as his standard and only standard, the Word of God, in as far as he could possibly wield it, and that was Douglas Wilson. These two men debated for years. Their debate ended up becoming a book called, Is Christianity Good for the World? I believe is the title. Christopher Hitchens described himself not so much of an atheist as an anti-theist. He was self-consciously rebellious against the idea of Christianity, of any transcendent being who would intervene in history in a personal way through, in his words, apply vicarious redemption and thus absolve man from responsibility. He despised and hated that idea. On the face of it, this, the, the clash was seemed reasonable enough on a personal level, but you could see immediately when these two men spoke, That there was no middle ground. There was no compromise. There could be conversion. As far as I know, there was no conversion. A couple years after that documentary was published, Christopher Hitchens succumbed to cancer. Unless that man repented, he went where David asked that every wicked, rebellious man go. That he would be put to shame and that he would go silently to Sheol. That man not only didn't understand and kept a safe distance uncomfortably from the Word of God, he sought to to raise up another word in its stead. He spoke insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And David prayed that forces like that, that those lying lips would become mute, that they would be bound and gagged and led to hell. Why? Because he wanted God's Word to stand. He wanted everything else that sought to stand in its place to be rightly and justly removed from that position of prominence in the minds and the thinking and the culture of his day. You know, it's, it's a, it troubles me to say it, and it's with some fear of God that I mention this example. And God only knows and reaches into the recesses of the heart and can save man at the last hour. But I declare to you again... That if Hitchens did not repent, cancer was the tool that God used to silent that insolent voice. That is a fearful and a heavy thought. Remember this as you consider that. Every one of us had that same voice of insolent rebellion before we came to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it was only His grace and mercy that changed our tune. And none of us deserved it. And every one of us instead would have rightly and justly been bound and gagged and led to hell because we stood, even in our passivity, relative indifference, equally against the glory and holiness of Almighty God as a prominent anti-theist, atheist, satirical writer. He might have accomplished more damage on the face of it, but he was no less a blight on God's glory. He was no more a blight on God's glory than anyone who refuses to acknowledge the glory of God indeed is. The believer stands instead of voices like this. They may flourish for an hour, but they are silenced in a moment. The believer also stands with others. You O saint are not alone, David assures us this and even drew great encouragement from that reality in verses 19 and 20, oh how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them. From the plots of men you store them in your shelter, from the strife of tongues. And in your mind's eye you can see a picture of glorious reprieve, where the pilgrimage to safety has been met by this lone soul, by the pilgrimage of many lone souls, and they've been ushered together in the presence of God. And this could be, as I trust it is this morning, in in this worship service, where we are gloriously united in fellowship with the confessing, believing church of Jesus Christ to drink in for a moment encouragement. We can take in and absorb, where in other situations through our daily life, we must resist and oppose. And in this case... David is speaking of similar conditions and suddenly he changes from the deeply personal I, me experience that he went through in his suffering to a corporate expression of joy and reprieve. He had said, you know, I trust in the Lord. I have been forgotten. I have become like a broken vessel. But suddenly it changes to the plural. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. In the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. We are not alone. The believer stands with others. Other believers through the corridors of time and as God is gracious in time as we share sweet fellowship with one another even today. This incredible bond of co-God-fearers is a strong one. And should be drawn upon as a great and immense resource and well of encouragement. What a privilege it is. What a gift it is. David, I don't know how much he would give, but I suspect he would pay a very high price during his lonely days as a fugitive to be able to enter the tabernacle of the Lord and fellowship in safety with those who mutually affirm the glory of God in holy, united worship. It's sweet. It's sweet. It's like the oil that flowed down the beard of Aaron. It's a unity that causes, oftentimes, the most grieved souls under other circumstances for their tears of joy, or for their tears of mourning to be transformed in an instant as they embrace the fellowship of the beloved to tears of joy and incredible relief. David mentions also the cover of your presence, and I. See another Exodus illusion here. You store them in your shelter, he says in verse 20, but prior to that, he says, in the cover of your presence, you hide them. Remember in Exodus, that moment, chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, you can study at a later time, when Israel is being chased by her enemies, as it appears David is in a similar situation in this psalm, but God intervenes and appears in His manifest glory. Normally, during the night, there's a pillar of fire that leads them during the day, a pillar of cloud. But on this particular night of extreme distress, where the enemies, the most technologically advanced and totalitarian regime the world had known at that time, was biting at the heels of this enslaved and just recently freed people, who knows if they had so much as two swords to rattle together among them. On this particular night, the pillar of fire stood in front of them But the cloud of God's presence stood between them and the assailing forces. They experienced what David says in verse 20. In the cover of your presence, you hide them. God will go to extreme measures to provide a cover of his presence to hide his people. And he does that through means that he employs so graciously, including the fellowship of the Beloved. Believer stands with other believers. Believer stands because of God's steadfast love. Verses 19 and, I'm sorry, verses 21 and 22, we read, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown, wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was a besieged city. I said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my plea for mercy when I cried to you for help. Ultimately, we stand because of God's steadfast love and because of His mercy. I'm told in the Hebrew there's a word here that's used for this repeated term, steadfast love. The root is something like hesed, and that same root is used to describe the saints. In verse 23, love the Lord, all you His saints. So, encrypted in this Hebrew poetry in our reading in English is a connection between God's steadfast love and those who experience it. We are the steadfast loved ones of God. You and me and every believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ are his saints, his saints, his steadfast loved ones who stand because of that undeserved mercy, that divine intervention that saved us from our sin. And finally, the believer stands for something. Verse 24, David declares, be strong, And let your heart take courage. Again, there's a shift in the emphasis and direction of this song. And it changes to one of exhortation. Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. We stand for something. We stand to proclaim. We stand to praise the Lord and to encourage praise from others. We stand joined together today. Gathered together, not forsaking the assembly so that we exhort each other and we encourage each other to praise the Lord. This is the objective. The believer stands for the proclamation, the declaration, the reflection and showcasing of God's glory, and he stands to encourage others to do the same. Finally, and in closing... This thought comes to mind again and I think it's a great summary point to close. This psalm is so saturated with truth. I hardly know where to begin and I certainly have a a tough time summarizing it and wrapping it up. But as we recall, verse 31, 5, into your hands I commit your spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And remember the faithful words of Jesus Christ uttering those same words while he became the sacrifice that would in fact make David's prophetic words true are able to be fulfilled in the heart of every faithful believer. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I'm reminded that because Christ committed himself into the hands of Almighty God as the sacrifice for our sins, so we are utterly secure in committing ourselves to His hands of steadfast love. The angry hands of God have become the outreached hands of steadfast love for us. Sinners who stand in the hand of an angry God should cry while it remains today for mercy. But once they do and receive the glorious salvation of their soul in Jesus Christ, those hands of judgment become the the outstretched hands of compassion and safety. The hands of God that wrap His steadfast love as a security and bulwark and fortress and rock, a refuge that can never be penetrated by the enemy. Again, because Christ committed Himself to the Almighty, the hands of Almighty God as a sacrifice for our sins. And those hands wrought the judgment on His back that our sin deserved and crushed His body with the weight of our own punishment. Because of that moment, we are utterly secure in committing ourselves to His hands of steadfast love. And we can say with David, with confidence, in You, O oh Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we be overwhelmed with a flood of glorious realization of the power of Jesus Christ and His work for us and through us to others this holiday season. I pray for a displacement that would take uh, place inside of us, Lord, that we would be so uh, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness so much that we would absorb in our times of meditation and reading of Your Word and conversing with the faithful so much reason to overflow in worship that other things that easily discourage, distract, distress us, and distract us would be pushed aside, displaced by glorious meditation of which You alone can do in which you alone have done lord i thank you that the words of scripture ring true and profound from ages previously lord ages prior to the advent of christ and for all ages they will ring while the grass withers and flowers fade and every dissenting voice is silenced the word of the lord indeed stands forever May we be, Lord Jesus, united with that inertia, the thrust of redemptive history. May we be, Lord Jesus, carriers of your word, lovers of your word, declarers of your word to wherever you call us this holiday season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.